Yeah, it's just whenever it starts recording, it makes me so nervous. <laughs> I know. I, I don't know why I'm so nervous now, too. I'm just like, don't speak right? to me. <laughs> All right, let's just go ahead and get started. Why are we so awkward? <laughs> Life's hard. Let's talk about it over some tea. Welcome to Tea and Transitions, where we serve up stories on the dynamic lives of women of color as they navigate through life's cold, lukewarm, and steamy moments. I'm Vina Vo, a planner, facilitator, and today your personal tea snob. And I'm Odelia, a writer and educator trying to not spill too much tea. So grab your favorite cup or mug and let's get right into some TNT. I'm so excited to be back. It's been a freaking minute. So it has been a minute. I've been missing tea. I've been missing our chat. I'm, <laughs> I'm here for all of it this season. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited to to come back. Um, we have some really amazing stories this season that we've been working on. And we've both just have been we've had some really exciting transitions as well, I think, which is why it has taken us so long to get back to our podcast. But thank you to our loyal listeners for staying with us and asking us like, hey, when's the second season going to drop? So yeah, you know, when we decided to have a podcast, we're like, oh, it's gonna be so fun. Our friends and family will listen. But now we have people listening from all across the world, all different demographics. And that gets me so excited that people want to hear stories from women of color, and they're engaging with it, and they want to hear more. And we're about to bring you all the more. All the more. Yeah, I was looking at our stats and we actually have someone, I think, from Kazakhstan listening, which I'm really surprised about. So hello, listener. Thank you for joining us. I hope you find our content interesting yeah. and relevant. Yeah, so all right. we're still here. The pandemic didn't get us. We're still here. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, you and I both haven't had COVID yet. We're one of the few folks that I, I know of in my circles. So it's, I feel like it might come get us soon. We'll see. I don't know. Honestly, the dark humor in me knows that like anyone can get COVID. It doesn't matter how careful or not careful you are. But then I also think, wow, am I elite? So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think I'm doing anything special compared to others. Um, but yeah, I'm just waiting, waiting for the, my time to come. We'll see. Wow, really about to knock on some wood here. Uh, yeah, we yeah. Could have been, I shouldn't say that. It's virtually really, retrograde. Like, I what know. kind of things can we be calling to ourselves right now? I know, you know, you know me and my manifestations. They they become pretty potent. So I really should not be spewing this into the world. Anyway, yeah, and for our, and for our <laughs> listeners, this Mercury retrograde is supposed to affect Pisces, especially. So we just got to send support to Vina. Oh no! Yes, yes. Oh my gosh. I shouldn't be inviting those vibes into my life. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, so what are what are we drinking today? Oh, I don't know. You tell me. I'm just the one who uh, listens to the notes. Um, <laughs> but it smells really delicious. Um, but I do know you sent some jasmine tea. Um, we appreciate all the tea you sent. And I'm just, you know, I, it's been one of those weeks that's been really long. And I'm someone who scents are really important to me, like lavender, eucalyptus, and just smelling this tea is making my body just let out such a calm sigh. Like it's just, I'm inhaling it and I'm just feeling it like warm my entire body. And I'm just very grateful for this smell and this cup in my hand right now. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Don't drink too much though, because the caffeine will 
well, what might it might um, change your calm demeanor. But yes, yes. I'm glad I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yeah. So today, um, I chose the jasmine tea for today because um, we're talking about legacy, and legacy to me means so many different things. Um, but the reason why I chose the jasmine tea is. Odelia, you mentioned sense of smell is really powerful for you and it takes you to different places. Um, so for me, whenever I smell jasmine tea, I always think of my family. I grew up drinking jasmine tea even before probably children should be having caffeine. Um, we always had jasmine tea at home during ceremonies, during um, death anniversaries, during um, weddings. And um, I remember it most probably especially during uh, whenever we would eat dim sum. So growing up, you know, we didn't really have the traditional pancakes and eggs for breakfast. We really had like dim sum. That was like, you know, when you go out for, for breakfast, you would do dim sum. You wouldn't really go to get like brunch or something like that. And so the smell of jasmine tea always reminds me of um, sitting around a big table, spinning the lazy Susan around to, you know, get your tiny morsels of, um, sumai and um, oh, what's the other one? Oh, it's been so long since I had it. Oh, and hakao. And those are pretty much the only two things I eat at dim sum anyways. And for the most part, I feel like most people I go eat dim sum with where we get like three different things. Um, and so, yeah, I think about, you know, when we sit around those tables, it's very multi-generational. It's usually me, um, my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents and my cousins and we're all just you know chomping away at our really like delicious food and drinking down the jasmine tea and the jasmine tea is meant to help cleanse the oils um that comes from the from the dim sum mm, I love all that imagery of the food and I know we're going to talk about food today in one of our stories and food's just such a big part of legacy in general it's the most delicious part of legacy and you know, one of the things I've been trying to do is just like learn more of the recipes from my mom. But I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, recipes of elderly, like older women in the family are all like, oh, just, you know, vibes. And I appreciate that <laughs> until the vibes are like, oh, this is not what it's supposed to taste like. What do you mean by vibes when you say recipe or like vibes? Yeah, I just feel like my mom's like, oh, you know, you just like, you'll know how much to put in or you'll smell how much you should put in or, you know, just a little pinch mm. or a hand. I'm like, none of these are measurements. So to me, when I hear that, I'm just like, oh, vibes only, you know, you're going to feel <laughs> what you feel. And then that will be the meal. And oh. I was just like, can a girl get a tablespoon, a teaspoon? <laughs> like, I, I also like to like mix in and, you know, experiment with food, but I would love to at least know what is the foundation of that dish that I've loved so much growing up so that I can enjoy those flavors and then make those flavors my own? Yeah. When you talked about the measurements and, you know, your mom saying you should just know, or you could get a feel for it. It makes me think of certain traditions that are passed on um, in my family. So we have um, a tradition of ancestor worship where we worship our ancestors who've passed um, celebrating their death anniversary. We don't celebrate their birthdays. We celebrate their death anniversary. And it's a way to kind of like remember the ancestors, but also call them back. Um, and then we also celebrate during uh, the, um, I don't know how to say it in English, but it's like the Lunar New Year. That's one. And then the Harvest, the Harvest Festival as well. We celebrate those. And then we also call the ancestors and like the spiritual deities back. And like, 
these these practices that have been going on for so many years and it's a way for us to connect our ancestors i because i because i grew up as like a vietnamese american in the diaspora i like really don't know how to do all of that and when i was living in vietnam people my age they just knew because they grew up with it they were so accustomed to it and it was just like oh you knew what kind of fruit you had to offer you knew like what day you set it out you knew the colors um, and then I think about my sister who came to the U.S. a little bit later than me. She knows all of these things, too. And so I've been trying to, like, document, like, how do you do all these things? I asked my grandpa to help me figure out how to, like, do ancestor worship. And it's kind of funny, like, you know, as I'm, like, <laughs> in my notebook trying to write all this down, he's just kind of laughing at me, being like, oh, you know, you're you're writing this down like it's some sort of, like, instruction manual. But for someone like me who's part of the diaspora, that's kind of how I retain these traditions and how I can continue to hopefully hold on to like some of these elements of our culture. So I'm curious, mm. you know, if you have any of that, like sort of in your family, your culture mm. that you're trying to cling on to. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think of three things, actually. Like one, when we were writing our book, A Fly Girl's Guide to University, people would read it and say like, this isn't a guide because they really expect it to be like a one, two, three, four of all Mm. the steps to take if you're a woman of color going to these universities. But it was our stories, the way that we've embodied the space and we're sharing those stories with people. To us, that is a guide. Like the guides in my life has always been people sharing about their experiences and then me understanding what does that mean for my own experience? And so this like disconnect of like what the world sometimes says, like, we need these instructions versus like embodying experience and sharing that with someone. And then it also made me think about um, just the way in which, especially like, you know, groups that have also been marginalized over the years retain their things. Cause we're often not the ones who are going to make it into the history books. We're not like writing mm-hmm. things down with pen. And so we've often embodied our rituals, like into like tea rituals or honoring the dead. And these are things that we can only be felt and um, acted out. Uh, and we need people to, so we have to experience those things and be in community with people to experience them. And I feel like I recently got to do that at a black women's nourishment retreat that I went to because we, talked about ancestors from the north the south the east and the west and you know earth and wind and calling them into being community with us and you know taking flowers and going there and like so much of me was like okay I've seen some of these things before with other groups I've been part of I feel you know comfortable in this community and another part of me was also watching to see how other people are are doing this so like I continue to feel in my body like how do I want to you know do those practices. But I think the more I'm in those spaces and I am like doing those motions together with other people who are connected ancestrally, like with me in those spaces, I feel more and more connected. And now I find myself seeking those spaces out more because it isn't something that I can read about or write down as much as, you know, like we've been trained to document those things and yeah, even as I'm writing right now, this book about family history, I'm like, I need to go to Guyana, I need to walk in the same spaces that people walk that I'm writing about, I need to close my eyes and imagine what they felt. And I think so much of legacy in my family is embodying experiences and being in spaces. And I'm trying to allow myself and seek those spaces more. Oh, I love that. I love the idea of embodying your legacy. Because I think I I do... Sometimes I confound traditions and legacy together. And when I think of traditions, I mean, traditions are a way to sort of 
maybe as a way to feel legacy in various ways. Like when I think of ancestor worship, you know, being in the being in that moment, being in that process, then I can attempt to connect with my ancestors in various ways by by calling to them and connecting with them. Um, but then thinking about legacy in general and how that's really something that we can feel within ourselves. And um, it reminds me of this meditation that I do through the Plum Village um, teachings is talking about how you're like you, this gets, a, this gets a little bit like a little bit introspective and a little bit maybe metaphysical, but it's like, you are not yourself. Like you are just, you know, you are made up of your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, and so forth. Like you are a product of all of these lineages and all of these people and all of the elements of the earth that come together. And I think when I first heard this, I was like, all right, this is a bit much, but the more and more I kind of meditate on it and think about it, the more beautiful I think it is that we are not, you know, we are not unique specimens that were made by accident. We were like a cluster of stardust that have come together to form our unique beings. And I think I actually read that. I think I read something about that in that one story. Um, a Wrinkle in Time? A Wrinkle of Time. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, there was one quote about how like, you know, you are the universe and all of these things came together to bring you together. I just think that's so magical and so beautiful. So hearing you talk about the embodying experience of legacy takes away from the notion that, you know, you need to com- you need to have various accomplishments that end up in the history books to be considered leaving a legacy behind or having a statue um, erected in your honor or having, you know, the name of a building named after you, um, that that's the legacy that can live. But realizing that legacy can live on in the people that you touch, I think is something really powerful and really beautiful. And the kind of legacy I think I am more interested in, in leaving behind, um, I've always been more about like deep, smaller, deep impact, but like on a smaller scale. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what does legacy mean to you and how, what kind of legacy do you want to think about leaving behind? Yeah, I definitely have always been someone who's thinking about like, whose lives am I impacting and touching and would love at the end of my life, if all the people were gathered together, that they would say that I helped them feel comfortable and that they belonged and that they mattered and that I'm doing that for as many people as possible and loved ones around me. And, you know, when I was younger, I really wanted big impact, like be famous, mm-hmm. like do all these things. And not you still could like, be famous. You're, you're on your way. I'm waiting. I'm waiting I, for it. I still it. could be, but don't forget you know, me. <laughs> Uh, I was reading something uh, that my dear friend and, and Pastor Pastor Erna wrote uh, the other day on her page, Liberated Together, about how she's just like thinking about like just like this like her small impact and how sometimes you can think about it being like that you are too small and like the world's problems are really big, or you can like really lean into the fact that like yeah we are small compared to the universe, but it doesn't mean that we can't do these like really beautiful, meaningful things within the circles that we touch. And that's helped me even dig into what a legacy I could leave in Oakland. Like I'm someone who used to move all the time. And now I'm just really happy to be in the Bay and to spend time in Oakland. And, you know, I think about this quote all the time that says, you know, we chase wild dreams along for all that eludes us, but the greatest stories are within our grasp if we can only recognize them. I'm trying to live that out more and just say like, what is my legacy here in a city 
and a, a region that I truly love and feel connected to, even though like it isn't the one I was born into. And what does it mean through my writing uh, and the work that we're doing together in storytelling for me to think about my own legacy as a storyteller and help other people um, be able to, to bring that out and, and just embody it. I'm, I'm still figuring out what does it mean for me to embody legacy. And I, I know in a lot of the work I'm doing to uncover more relatives and think about my family history, that there's an answer there for me. And I'm just, just digging like an archaeologist to, to find it. And I've just been able to connect with so many more people. So I think for me, legacy is also just like knowing who I am connected to and the stories that have existed over a long period of time that eventually made me, uh, you know, to be born on November 17th. And yeah, I'm just trying to figure out like all the things that have been brought down to, to be me. And I loved what you said about the, the stardust. And there was a quote I read the other day about how, or it actually was in a poem about how we're just thousands and millions of words when we're born and we get to like find the right ones that are going to be our voice because there's been voices that have come down many years before us. And now it's time for us to pick out the words that we want to use. I feel like the way you talk about um, Oakland and the Bay area and the community you're building is just so filled with love. And I'm really excited then to introduce our next story, which, you know, in, in so many ways, there's little subtle hints of how we can see love expressed in various ways. And I see the way that you express your love for Oakland in the way that you talk about it, the way that you share um, others um, to the experience and the way that you get involved with the community there. This next story really talks about how love shows up in small but meaningful ways and the legacy that it can leave behind. So we're super excited to introduce to you Love in a Bowl by Christine. Every Lunar New Year or that, I try to recreate a dish that my Bang Wai made for the family called Mun Ba Hui. The broth is rich, a deep spicy red from a blend of chili and annatto seeds, an overnight and fragrant stock of lemongrass and beef. Bang Wai has passed on for nine years now, but whenever this holiday comes around, I especially feel an aching gape of another milestone without her. My Bangwai was not biologically related to me. My grandpa remarried her after his first wife, my mother's mother, died when my mother was a teenager. My Bangwai did not have any children of her own and had no living relatives that she kept in touch with. I knew that she was orphaned young and the aunt who took her in did not stay in her life. I only remember pieces of stories she told Tales of a gory past of how she came to know of charred animals and human remains as a child, the product of growing up through two wars. Perhaps because of her traumatic past, my Bangwai avoided close bonds to avoid emotional pain, keeping others at arm's length and claiming not to need any form of affection in her life. And yet, I never believed her. It was impossible for her to hide her love towards us. Her love showed up when she patiently listened to us enthusiastically share in our daily school stories, when she defended our actions against our parents, 
or how she delighted in recounting stories of her grandkids to strangers. As a young child, and often into my teens and adulthood, I would tease her and ask her directly if she loved me. Her answer was always a resounding no. But it was impossible to not feel her love through my daily interactions with her, especially when she cooked for us. Her love seeped through her actions, how she put extra care and attention to my favorite dishes, or how she keenly observed my preferences so that she can indulge me with them later. The extra caramelization of the meat sauce that I like to smother my rice in, sacrificing the best bits of the meal so that I could finish them later, or shooing everybody away from her finished pickled mustard greens so that they would come a little more sour, just the way that I liked it. While she always answered no to a direct question about love, I could see her love in the way she hid her proud smile when we were mentioned in the way she allowed me to hold her soft wrinkled hands in public, in the way she played off her various sacrifices as nothing more than a minor inconvenience that she already forgot about. The love came in all directions throughout the day and into the evening, where the pastel dinner mints would be hidden in a glass jar in her dresser, sneaking it out only when we came to visit her before her bedtime. After she passed, I tried to recreate her signature dish each year at Lunar New Year's for my family. The first year was shocking. It was so much work for one person to do, yet I never heard her complain or ask for help when she was around. A part of me will always regret not pushing more to learn her methods, as Benoit would never allow me in the kitchen with her. We were a nuisance, she would claim. When I served my dish to the family, I wish I could say that I remember how hers tasted or how it looked or whether mine was similar or not. But I can't remember, and even if I did, I will always feel that my version of the spicy soup would just be an imitation of hers, mediocre at best. Despite this, whenever we gather together, I feel proud for being able to continue her tradition to show love in the form of food to my growing family, retaining our Vietnamese culture together one meal at a time and keeping the memory of my grandma alive. My Bamai taught me how to speak of love without speaking, how to show love by doing. I hope that my family, my children, and maybe one day their children will be able to feel the abundance of love, care, and affection that has been channeled through the generations in the form of a simple, steaming, hot bowl of wumba Christine, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so one of the, I think one of my favorite lines from your story that reminds me of my own grandmother is when you ask her, do you love me? And then she tells you no. <laughs> it's, it just, it gives all, <laughs> like, it gives so much insight into like her character. You know, it's a, such a simple response. And um, you mentioned in your story that through her cooking is how you knew that she loved you. So I'm curious, you know, what about her cooking made you believe that? I think it was the care to attention or care and attention that she gave in terms of really remembering the things that I would 
you know, like or enjoy and kind of secretly ensuring that was there, but never admitting to it, right? Like, for example, um, I really liked really sour pickles and my grandma would not let folks, you know, un undo the pickle jar too early um, or else it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not as sour, but she would never say it's because, you know, that's what, you know, that that's what I want or that's for me. She would never admit that she's doing it for me. And she would just kind of haphazardly say, oh, it's finally ready. And then, you know, <laughs> there you go. It's very sour, but it's not really for you. Right. Um, she always just had a very uh, interesting way of, of just not saying it <laughs> or not ever wanting to admit that what she was doing was out of love. Like, even if it took her more time, you know, even if it, you know, even if it meant that she had to give me the best pieces, you know, she just would never admit to it, but still it would always be there. And I feel like there's that sense of sacrifice that was behind those small actions that, may not translate to much, you know, outside any, you know, to, to, to other folks, but I can see it just because it, you know, it, it was eating such a daily part of our lives. Right. Um, and that, you know, sharing that meal together, that's such a big part of our life that I feel like whenever she made those small sacrifices for me, that's really like her demonstrating her love without ever having to admit that she actually loved me. <laughs> And at what age or how did you know, like, when did you realize that's how she showed love? Because as you're telling me this, I'm thinking of all the times, like my grandmother and all the other people in my family have done acts of service for me that I completely probably overlooked. And just, you know, I, I desperately waited for the words, like, I love you or, you know, like or something like that. Like I never really heard that from my family. And I always yearned for that because that was like, you know, the American way, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. But as just hearing you talk about like, you know, the pickles and the food and the care and the time, I was like, oh yeah, like my family did all of that stuff for me too. Um, and it was something I realized later. So I'm curious for, for you, like when did you realize that? I don't know if there was a particular age, but there was actually one memory that really stands out. Um, it, you know, back then we had one TV in the household, right? So it's, and you, I mean, we, we grew up with television where you couldn't fast forward your television shows. Right? <laughs> commercials. Oh my gosh. How did I watch Pokemon with commercials? <laughs> terrible. terrible. Um, and you know, <laughs> uh, anyone young listening to this? <laughs> what are commercials? <laughs> yeah. um, but there is one memory that stuck out where, it started to form that thought that this was out of care and love and affection. And back then our whole family had one television. And so you really had to watch that one show that everybody else wanted to watch. And I was younger and I had an older cousin that lived with us. And I still remember being very afraid of it because it was um, the nightmare on Elm street, mm. uh, that movie with Freddy Krueger. And I remember just being scared out of my mind and my grandma just kind of, you know, took me into the kitchen with her and there's this dish. It's like a braised pork dish called titka, um, where if you, if you let it go long enough, the, the, the sauces thickens into this like really thick, you know, salty, sweet thickness, um, that's delicious. Right. And so she just sat there with me in the kitchen making these little rice balls so that I could dip them. And 
<laughs> I just remember thinking like she could be out there watching it. She could be yelling at me and telling me not to cry about, you know, Freddy Krueger on the screen or, you know, she could be doing all different things, but here she is sitting in the kitchen with me, right? Um, making me these little rice balls so I can dip and just, you know, just, just spending time with me so that I wouldn't have to be exposed to that horror. <laughs> um, and that was the first time that at least I really... That's like a really clear memory to me where, you know, being in the kitchen, being with her um, and just seeing her actions, you know, to me, that was that was a sense of like love and care and just, you know, kind of wrapping me in this safety, you know, safety net that um, <laughs> that Freddie was trying to break down. You know? <laughs> so, so I don't I think it was really young, but but that was kind of the first time where at least I connected, you know care and affection, um, through, through, through kind of her feeding me and, and, um, and how she would show love that way. I love that. And just the thought of, um, care and safety really stands out to me. Like, you know, we, we've talked often about this, like mm-hmm. difference of, you know, this Western world of hearing, like, I love you. It's in all the Hallmark cards and all the movies, <laughs> but there is this idea of, you know, care and safety, particularly from um, communities of color and women of color, because they are very wrapped up in caring for their families and uh, making sure that their families are safe. And that is definitely an mm-hmm. act of doing. And by doing those things, like that is the love that they are enveloping around us. And, mm-hmm. you know, we love to hear the words, I love you. But like, that's, you know, now that we're older, I'm sure we all recognize just how powerful it is and the work that they had to put in and the work that we're putting in now uh, that we're mm-hmm. older to make sure that that, yeah, that that legacy of love and safety is is still there as well. Uh, yeah. And also thinking about, you know, the the food that you're, you're cooking, um, when we're talking about like legacy, a lot of people think of legacy as like identical, like they played baseball and now he's playing baseball. What a great legacy. But what I love about your story is you're describing this dish that you don't even know if you're making uh, identical to your grandmother. You don't know if it tastes the same or if it looks the same, but how does the act of even just making it every Lunar New Year still make you feel like you're living out her memory and that legacy? That's a great question. I think it's it's like that act of doing, right? Um, it's it's all of the steps that are included in it, and you know, like I think one one of the one of the regrets, obviously, is that you know she really wouldn't let us in the kitchen to learn directly from her, right? Um, and so I'm piecing together, you know, thank goodness for YouTube and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like like looking at how she would have, you know, approached seasoning the dish. And I remember like certain memories of how she would do, like, for example, one of the ways that um one of the parts of the dish is that you have to, after you're done, you know, uh, stewing and the meat over a very long period of time, you slice it and then you season it with more with uh more of like the um don't know what the the boat is in English though. It's you like say red... it. Yeah, I was like, say it however you want to. Is it bokne? No. So oh. it's the it's the red stuff. I know that red stuff. Yeah, I know you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Like see, Odelia, like like there are there are parts of the recipe that I don't even really know what the names are. I just know that. Yeah, you go, you get these seeds. Anato, I think they're called. Anato, it is anato seed oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I, I don't so, know this oil. 
<laughs> yeah. So it's like you have to you have to buy these seeds. And so actually you could do it the easier way and get the oil, but I actually get the seeds, then you pour it in oil, then you cook it so that you can get all of the coloring out, right? So it's, and then you put that in with like chopped up uh, shallots and then mm. you stir fry that so that the, it's like the smell is just like completely warm, right? Um, and then you add the, the red oils, then you add more of the seasoning and the powder, and then you add like crushed lemongrass. So you go through all these steps and then you add like a little bit of fish sauce and you add the beef and then you stir fry all of that so that on top of like cooking the broth, you have meat that's already flavored. There's something about the doing and that action that just, you know, like that, that, that muscle memory, you know, mm-hmm. um, of, of trying to learn it, trying to have that muscle memory going through the various steps that, you know, kind of captures, or at least makes me feel like, you know, that I'm with her and I'm, you know, going through the, these, these steps making sure that, you know, that the outcome, um, is something that the family will enjoy. Right. Uh, and it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. I was like, wow, there's an oil she could buy, but she's out here crushing all these. Yeah. You, you're like doing it. it the real, real hardcore way. <laughs> I would have just gotten the oil, but now that I know that you do that, my might. I might try to do it the real you're, way. <laughs> you're putting a, you're putting a lot of love into yeah. that. You know, I, I think definitely later in life, I think a lot about like who is making the food that I am consuming. And I want to know that it's like a labor of love and not something that's been mass produced. So I, I, I mean, that's just a beautiful story of like the, the muscle memory coming back of just being one with that. So, it's yeah. definitely making my mouth water. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I might want to get bum away for for um for dinner now oh that sounds so good um i know you you always kind of like feel like you're being you know judged from grandma you're watching from wherever right like especially when you're preparing all of the side herbs and veggies that go with it right Mm -hmm. you know like sometimes i get lazy and i'm just chopping like haphazardly and i can hear somebody saying oh you know like if you slice it really thinly, then it cooks in the broth and it's better for everybody. And then I'm like, and then I'll slow down a bit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the same way too. And I, I'm such like, I think I inherited my mother's, um, like haphazard cutting ability. Cause then whenever I see her cook now, like all of her stuff just looks not uniform or neat. But then I look at my grandmother's and it was always perfect. The, the herbs were always washed so clean. It was not only was it washed clean, it was also dried, you know, like that extra step of it being dry because if you leave it wet, then it wilts. Um, yeah. I think I'm the generation where it breaks down because my mom is still a very careful generation. It's, it's me. I, I've become the generation <laughs> where it breaks down, <laughs> which means I can solve it too. I can, I can change my, change my trajectory now. And, uh, <laughs> but, but speaking of generations that are doing things differently, um, you know, like you've got a young daughter, like what do you, what do you hope to be your relationship with your daughter when it comes to the kitchen and cooking? Cause you talked about your grandmother, you know, shooing you out of the kitchen. I think we've all been there, but what, what do you hope your memories of kitchen and cooking will be with your daughter? Well, I, I think it's one of those things that you learn, you learn from that, right? Like I'm sure if I told my grandma today, Hey, I really, when it would have been really nice to know the exact amounts that you were putting in because um, so, so the Vietnamese word for seasoning is like name. So 
Nam just has a sound that seems like you just kind of know by tasting it, right? Like, is it right or is it wrong? And so I do wish that, I wish I had more of just that um, support or, or, you know, kind of like that, that help in the kitchen about like, what do you mean by, you know, like enough so that it isn't too salty? You'll know when it's too salty. Yeah, I was like, that sounds specific to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so and so so I I guess the one thing that I would try a little differently, you know, with Camilla um, is we would name it together, we would taste it together, mm. so that you know we can bounce it off. And and the reality is, honestly, um, for example, if my mom was in the kitchen with me the way that she would taste something, it would always, always be that it's, you know, my, my preference is too salty for her. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not that, you know, it's not that, you know, if, she, if, if I had learned directly from my grandma, maybe it would have been completely, you know, different. Cause that's where I think we bring our personal preferences in, but maybe if we did that together with me and Camilla, then she can at least see what I'm aiming for or not. And then she can put her own twist to it. Um, you know, later on. So it may be one day her mumbahui will be a slightly different version from mine, right? Um, especially because, you know, she'll she'll bring in her like, you know, her other um her other preferences and desires. So yeah. oh, it's beautiful. It's a beauty of legacy. It doesn't yeah. have to be exactly the same. You know, you do it together and then yeah. you know you watch as it flower uh, you know, blossoms into something else in the, the next wave. But I would yeah. also say my mom thinks I put too much salt in things. I feel like I've changed over the years. But when I was younger, I used to just eat salt, like just straight salt out oh, of my gosh. hand. <laughs> definitely too much salt. I do that. Yeah, I, I'm, I think that fish sauce makes everything better. And it's whenever it's funny because whenever my husband's cooking something, he's like, can you taste this? What do you think? And I was like, it needs fish sauce. You know, like, it's, yeah, that's you just, just a, go grab it, and dump it, in. <laughs> it truly is the magical ingredient to fix all things like got a bland pasta, add fish sauce instantly better. <laughs> I, I really loved yeah. when you were talking about the concept of like Nam. When, when I make an English version, I call it naming it. Nam just naming it. like, yeah, 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 to like taste, right? And to just like gauge the yeah. flavor. Same with my family. We don't cook with recipes. It's like, you just do it until it's right. Like, why don't, what don't you get? Um, and I've yeah. started doing that myself too. Like when I start cooking now, a lot of the things that I cook, this is why I can't bake, um, is I don't have a recipe. I'm just like, uh, it needs more turmeric. I'm just going to toss it in, like salt, pepper. And I, there's something about that that makes me enjoy cooking more is that creative freedom as opposed to yeah. sticking to like a recipe. Obviously, with some recipes, I'll like um, try it a first time, you know, with um, there's a, a really great website called www.hungryhui.com. He has all these like great <laughs> Vietnamese recipes and I started following his Titka recipe, which is the braised pork um, recipe we're talking about. And now, you know, after getting the hang of it, I'm like, okay, I can, I can do this on my own. I can like name it until I get it right. Um, but yeah, it's just it, that when you were telling me about that, I'm just seeing this image in my head of, you know, like, and this is present in my family too. And I think a lot of people maybe in their families is, you know, the woman in the kitchen with her hand on her hip. And she's like holding out the ladle for you to taste. And I remember when I was invited into the kitchen to like taste for my grandmother, it made me feel so special. Like, so, so like I was like an honored guest, you know, she's like, what do you think? And often she trusts. Yeah, she did. And like, oftentimes, you know, I think like as a kid growing up in a very sort of hierarchical sort of family, 
you don't really get to give a lot of opinions or you don't really get to share what you think is right. You always have to listen to your elders. They're always right. But yeah. to be invited into the kitchen to ask to taste something and being like, oh, you need more salt, you need more pepper, or this is like too sour, or, you need more sugar. Like that's a pretty, pretty cool position of authority. Yeah. yeah. I love that. And I hope that in every, and I think I've seen it and, you know, as you know, we're in next generation, next generation. It's almost like the kitchen door is revolving a little bit more. It's not closed as often. Yeah. And I think like, especially when you're naming things, right. <laughs> it's, it's almost like you kind of smell it. You kind of, you know, you kind of hope for the best, but it, and sometimes I think about it, like you're drawing from your ancestors. <laughs> yeah. man, the like, dumb. <laughs> They're with you in the kitchen, just like, you know, looking down on you being like, you're really going to use that seasoning right now. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like in Vietnamese culture, like the kitchen is this, there's like, you know, there are even kind of folklore about deities that are sitting in the kitchen judging you all through the year. Right. What? And then at the end, (laughs) the kitchen gods, the kitchen gods. (laughs) I'm going to need you to keep up, Vina. Uh, (laughs) I did not know. I didn't want to know. (laughs) (laughs) So there's like this like folklore where there are kitchen gods and the kitchen gods basically sit in your kitchen because it's the heart of the household, right? And so all through the year, like all of the family drama, all of the things that you're doing, they're kind of secretly keeping a ledger so that when New Year's, the Lunar New Year comes... Um, they go back to heaven and then they report on your family. <laughs> They're basically snitching you yeah. It's like Elf on the Shelf. What? <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, there, there's also like that aspect of you know them them just you know you know channeling that seasoning through your hands and your nose and all of your senses to say, is this right? <laughs> oh, well, speaking of yeah. ancestors judging you. And reporting your crimes, I guess. I'm curious, like, what is a dish in the kitchen you all have made that is worthy of being reported? Like, it was a terrible dish. You shouldn't have done it. It still mar- it still harms, it still hurts you to know that you had made such a thing. Oh. It's good that it's taken a while. Seems like you all don't have something fresh in your mind. I, I don't know if it's not that you don't have it or, or she that you just want to block it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you just block out the memory. I'm, like, I'm really fine. <laughs> oh, Julia, you can share it too. Do you have one? Uh, I definitely, yeah. I'm like, also, like, I know that there are so many. Um, usually it's because I have been cooking in a hurry and I put two ingredients that look similar. Like I choose the one that it really isn't and that's not what was supposed to go in there. Like, um, or just like quickly grabbing, you know, like pouring in some sugar instead of some flour because they're both in like similar containers for me. And then I'm like, uh, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. Uh, definitely when I first started getting into baking, I had, to, you know, at least one baking disaster where the bread was just hard as rock and terrible. Baking is not very forgiving. But yeah, I just, I think more for me, it's just, there's still things that I really enjoy eating that I just don't think I make as good as my mom. And so it's, I will eat it and I'll be happy because it tastes fine, but mm-hmm. it's not as satisfying. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right, Christine, yeah, you got I, one? <laughs> no, no. I, I think that honestly, there's probably too many that <laughs> there's probably way too many that I just 
you know, I can't even can't even pick one out from from the list. But I'm with Adelia in that, you know, baking is just I don't I can't remember baking anything that I've ever been proud of. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> Teaspoon and tablespoon become really important when you're baking. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do a cake mix in a box. <laughs> Maybe those are pretty good. I think those are pretty good. I'll share mine since y'all don't have one. Um, I was studying abroad in Barcelona and I was trying to get all experimental, you know, because I was like, I'm in this new, very artsy city. And I got inspired because someone else had added pear to like a savory dish. And um, mm-hmm. Odelia, I know how you feel about fruit and savory dishes, but, you know, just bear with me here. And so I had some grapes. In, it's already um, troubling. <laughs> I had some grapes in the fridge and I had some brie. And I was like, oh, let me do some like, I'm going to do a brie pasta with grapes. And it was, it was truly, it was truly. <laughs> Nothing about this sounds good. <laughs> I think like I didn't get a, the right pasta. Like I got like probably an Asian noodle instead of pasta. And it was truly the worst thing I've ever made ever. And I, I tried to, you know, I tried to make it better by making like a smiley face out of the brie cheese. It was horrible. I saw a picture of it somewhere. It's just, it turned out to be this like gross, pale purple on like just pale lip, limp noodles. And in this case- Are fish- you really going to blame this on the pasta? Or are you going to blame <laughs> it on the things that you tried to put with the pasta that shouldn't it, be? It was truly my fault. I, I did everything in injustice. And like this was one instance, I would say, where fish sauce did not make things better. It just made it so yeah. worse. It's not a miracle worker. It can only do so much. I know. I know. It was- yeah. that, that probably would I mean, have to be reported. <laughs> Your brie and your brie and grapes make sense alone. Right. Your brie and gravy pasta probably makes sense. But yeah, Lena, I I'm trying to imagine this and it's it's definitely something I don't think I'd want to try. No, <laughs> then was, you added fish sauce. <laughs> I it was I mean, I was so young and and silly, I guess. So um, you know, something it's what's interesting to me in talking about just grandma grandmas bringing it back so we can hide my shame um, behind the talk of grandmas again, (laughs) is that it almost feels like grandmas are this like universally beloved figure, like family figure, you know, like everyone, not everyone, sorry, I can't say everyone, but whenever we hear about stories, when we see films, there's this like feeling about a grandma that just makes us feel warm. Um, It could be your paternal grandmother, uh, maternal grandmother, or adopted grandmother, grand aunt, or something like that. But there's something like universally loved about a grandmother that I don't feel is is like is applied to like you know mothers, fathers, or like grandfathers. And so, curious to hear your thoughts on that. And also, and as an added question, what grandma do you? What kind of grandma do you hope to be when you get to that age, or get to that stage in life? It's a great one. I so if I had to guess, especially now that you know that that we have Camilla, my mom, I get to see my mom as a grandma. I think part of it is that grandmas get to do the fun, loving things, but they don't have to take any responsibility. <laughs> so you know, all the discipline, all of like the the things that you're you know so careful to try to instilling your children's grandma kind of get a free pass because they're like well they've already done it once so mm-hmm. you know this time it's just about fun and love and exploring through 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 you know the eyes of the grandchild so I think that's probably one reason why um they get a little bit of a um you know 
like kind of like a second go at it without all the responsibilities, you know? Um, my grandma, my grandma is actually my, um, was actually our step grandma. So, uh, my mother's mom died when my mom was pretty young, like a teenager. And so this was my, her stepmother. And so my grandma actually never had her own children too, uh, on top of that. And so I feel like, you know, the, having us grow up around her was kind of like the second, you know, kind of like her first chance actually of having, um, young kids around. And so, so I think that, that definitely, um, that definitely was a, how would I say it? She could definitely kind of explore the feelings that she wouldn't allow herself to explore, you know, Mm -hmm. um, with us because we were younger. So the second part of your question is how would I want to be a grandma? I, I think the cool thing, um, about seeing Camilla grow up with my my mom right now is that she really gravitates towards my mom as kind of like the figure that will allow her to like really be herself um, and not, you know, not have all of the restraints of like, oh, you know, my mom says I can't watch TV or I can't <laughs> eat sweet peas. <laughs> like Camilla can't talk yet, right? She's, she's too young for any of that, but she knows that I'm kind of like, you know, like Charlie and I are like the enforcers of the bad habits that you're not supposed to let your toddler do. Right. Um, so my mom, I think allows her to be that little free spirit. And I'm hoping that if there was something, you know, like, like if she does decide to have kids one day, you know, and, and I'll be a grandma and I'll be lucky to be there for it, that I'll be able to just kind of nurture that little that little spirit and let them be free around me as however they want to be you know mm-hmm. um so that, that's what I would hope to be if I if I had the chance one day I think that's a very beautiful image the letting people be a free spirit for us to to close out <laughs> on so thank you Christine so much for just being with us today and sharing about just the food and your grandma and your life with us Thank you to you both for just kind of having these, you know, very thoughtful questions and exploring these um, really great memories and um, helping us along in terms of like even, you know, developing our voices to capture these stories because that's that's a lot of work. And so really thank you to you both um, for all of your your help and support in that way. We're building legacies out here through oral storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> it is it is I our joy. It. Yeah, it's so much fun. And uh, it makes me miss my grandma. I should give her a call. She's been busy lately with her physical therapist. <laughs> that sounds important. Very important. That's her joy. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Talk soon. It was so great getting to chat with Christine and hear her story and just her wonderful stories about her grandmother. And when I think about grandmas, I think about like warm hugs and food and the smells and just like the warmth that they bring us. And I'm really excited to learn more about this next grandmother and legacy from our story from Elise. I have a childlike mental map of St. Louis 
a scattering of memories that decorate my heart, with time being the only meaningful boundary. St. Louis is the home of my maternal lineage spanning back at least four generations. Last summer, I returned for a small reunion with my mom, uncle, aunts, cousins, and grandmother, who we call Granny. We surprised Granny with an early birthday party. Clustered around my aunt's kitchen table on a sticky St. Louis summer day, we each shared appreciation for her legacy. It was easy to point out the obvious examples of how she made significant impacts, like how she started an intergenerational care center in St. Louis, or how she advocated for my mom and siblings to go to private high school, despite their scant financial resources. But so much of a legacy is shaped by the rhythms of the everyday and seemingly mundane moments, like how she turned store runs and doctor's appointments into one-on-one -on -one quality time with my mom and each of her four siblings, or the personalized poems she wrote for each of her children. These are the parts that form the whole, like an intricately painted portrait. Most of my cousins grew up together in St. Louis with Granny. The ones at her birthday party grew up with her in the same household. So when they shared how she influenced their childhood, I found myself longing for the privilege of proximity. They had direct and consistent access, plenty of opportunities for one-on-one -on -one quality time and moments to receive her drive-by wisdom. They had direct and consistent access, plenty of opportunities for one-on-one -on -one quality time and moments to receive her drive-by wisdom. As a child, I never felt a sense of lack from living far away. I spent many holidays and summers with Granny and the rest of my mom's family. I even lived in St. Louis for the summer before middle and high school. But at that moment, as an adult at her birthday party, I was surprised by a new kind of longing. Had I missed out on everyday formative moments with Granny? Unlike most of my extended family, I was raised in Maryland. After leaving St. Louis, I went back to Maryland for the first time since the pandemic began. My mom and sister had purged old belongings in that early phase of the quarantine when many were feeling productive with newfound time at home. My mom and sister had purged old belongings in that early phase of quarantine when many were feeling productive with newfound time at home. Their purge unearthed my long lost journals from elementary to high school, which were waiting for my arrival at my mom's apartment. Seeing the covers of the journals was like meeting the faces of old friends who have not aged, even though my relationship to them had. There's one journal I forgot I had until I saw it again. It's a spiral-bound, hardcover notebook with dusty pink and red stripes. On the inside cover was a note dated January 2nd, 2001. Dear Elise, this journal is for you to record your good thoughts daily. Poems and drawings are also allowed. Followed by a poem titled, Happiness with a Dedication. I dedicate this poem to you, Elise. May it be an inspiration for you to continue to write. 
Love in Christ, your granny. On the second page, I wrote a poem imitating the structure of Granny's poem. As I turned the subsequent pages, I was surprised at how much poetry I had written. Even though my poetry was cryptic in its imagery, I could still tap into the emotion I was feeling at the time that I wrote it. Journaling became a regular practice for me to reflect and process all of the changes that happened during those critical adolescent years. And I continue to journal as an adult. Holding these pages was a balm to the longing I experienced in St. Louis. My childhood wasn't sprinkled with as many moments for drive-by wisdom or errands turned into one-on-one quality time, but Granny had validated my identity as a writer, and I hadn't fully recognized the impact of her affirmation. The hundreds of pages of journal entries are a testament to the ripple effect of her simple gesture from 20 years ago. Her poem and its dedication was, in fact, an inspiration for me to continue to write. I was longing for a piece of her legacy that I had all along. Recovering this journal gives me a new sense of grounding as I continue as a writer. I cherish Granny's gift that keeps giving. She inspired pages of writing through which I can always connect with my past self and locate my everyday formative moments. And through my continued commitment to my writing practice, I remain connected to her and know that this piece of her legacy will endure. Thank you, Elise, for being with us today. I'm really excited to go deeper into your beautiful piece about your grandmother and wanted to start us off by asking you, what does it mean for you to be your grandmother's granddaughter and which parts of you do you feel most reflect her? Yeah, I think I'm really proud to be her granddaughter, just knowing the her personal story and the things that she overcame um, and how she set up my mom and her siblings um, just to be the kind of people that they are. And, um, you know, everyone in our family feels really fortunate that our grandmother instilled this sense of connection and like a sense of community amongst the family, even though we may live in different places that we still um, benefit from today. And so I think Um, having her be, you know, our matriarch and and role model in that way and instilling the kind of love that we see, you know, three, four generations later um, makes me feel really fortunate and proud to be part of her lineage. And I think some ways that we are similar is our um, creativity. Uh, My grandmother, so I'm not a visual artist, but my grandmother is very creative with painting. Um, Obviously, I mentioned in my piece that she writes poetry, so she's very creative in that way. And I think she's also very resilient. Um, And so that's something that I, um, a couple years ago, when I, I wanted to record more of her stories and hear things that I hadn't, you know, heard before growing up. And so that's definitely one of the things I took away is how resilient she is and the way that she um, really makes the best out of whatever comes her way. So even some of the most difficult situations that she went through, you know, she really embodies uh, taking lemons and and making lemonade out of it. And so I think I get that from her as well. Um, Being willing to like try to find the good in, in tough situations and make it useful and meaningful for, um, you know, for my life and my own story. 
That's so beautiful. And just, I, I'm very close to my grandmother. I was actually raised by her. And so hearing you talk about your grandmother in such a loving way and how she was this connection point for you, your cousins and your aunts and uncles, it's, it reminds me a lot of my grandmother. She was kind of the same way too. Whenever we would have parties, it would always be a grandma's house. And um, we all grew up there as kids. And now I, when we were smaller, the house seemed so big. But now that we're all adults, we just take up so much space. But, you know, whenever we have family parties, for some reason, we still crowd in our grandmother's room. Like this poor, our poor grandma. She's like, I want to go to sleep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, oh, it's it must be so beautiful to have these like lovely memories with her. And mm -hmm. I really love the piece where you shared how she, um, the notebook that she gave you and how she had validated your identity as a writer this entire time. And the, some of the lines that really stuck out for me on that was you talked about how you longed for the privilege of proximity and thinking about how I, I had the access to my grandmother. I grew up with her, so I got to see her all the time. Um, and then how this notebook then for you became this like balm to that longing. I'm wondering, you know, how else have these past few years of the pandemic maybe shaped your understanding and relationship with proximity and that longing in relation to um, your understanding of self and family? I don't, I mean, I probably, I may have been thinking about this before the pandemic, but um, I think I'm always intrigued by connection to a place and like history and people that belong to a place. And so um, one thing I didn't mention in the story, but was when I, that contributed to that feeling of longing for that proximity um, is when I went back to St. Louis, there was a lot of other things that we did that week. So I had met um, some of my mom's cousins who I had never met before. Some of them were like her first babysitters. And um, I met my, my grandfather's um brother so I guess my great uncle and he's the he's the um the only living uh uh male from that side um mm. right now and he's like 90 something years old and just you know the whole week just going by um places where my my mom and her siblings grew up or going back to the learning tree which was my grandmother's intergenerational center um it made me feel that sense of like, wow, there's so much history here. There's so much lineage. There's so much connection. And there's um, obviously a lot of extended family that still live in St. Louis. And um, I really feel like it's a privilege to be able to grow up with that, to, mm -hmm. to see your um, family line over time and to have people together to support each other. And not to say that it's always going to be like, you know, a perfect situation, you know, depending on your family or the dynamics, but I do think there's so much value to that. And for me, the pandemic just makes that feel more um, obvious. You know, I live in California and I don't have any family here and really no family close. You know, I'm the only person that is living on the West Coast. And so I definitely felt that sense of like, um, longing in the in a way to to have my family closer when things like a pandemic happen or you know any other um, situations of crisis just to know that you have that support like on the ground with you so 
I definitely felt that, um, especially in the beginning of the pandemic when it was so uncertain, when, um, you know, travel would be safe again or when things would change. And I definitely now don't take for granted the fact that, you know, before I would just fly home every few months and it's no big deal. I didn't really feel like I was living as far away. Um, but during that time, it, it made me a lot more appreciative of being able to do that. Um, and I definitely don't take that for granted anymore. Yeah, my family's in Indiana. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, it really was like, wow, I don't know when I'll be home again. I don't know how all of this plays out. And I'm one who always thinks so much about proximity care and how important it is to build community and family around you who can get to you quickly. But, you know, wanting that proximity with my family and the way that they understand me really was shaped by the pandemic and trying to find new ways to connect with people. And as soon as we could travel, wanting to travel immediately um, to have that. And yeah, just continuing to think about that all the time and especially about place when you're talking at least about how important place is and thinking about like my own history I always call myself like doubly displaced like you know indentured servants and and slaves and then also like leaving South America and, and now being in the U.S. and what does it mean to make place and what does it mean to have a place that you can call your own and even be able to trace back like recently I was reading yesterday about how California is you know, their reparations council is going to start thinking about what that looks like for Black people in California, but they're going to be able to, they're going to have to be able to trace like lineage back to slavery to be able to take part in those reparations. And there's been a lot of conversation around that about people who place hasn't been something that we haven't always been able to claim. Uh, and that like, not be able to trace your lineage and that legacy is going to be really difficult for people to get something that they deserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that, you know, who's able to really trace all of that is like, it's such a privilege, privilege to be able to trace that. Um, you know, there's records that are purposely destroyed families that are purposely broken apart. So I, I haven't heard about that measure coming, but it sounds like a pretty, ridiculous thing to ask like oh you need to be able to trace it all the way back when we've provided you no opportunities to have this information yeah and 23andme just wants to charge you a bunch of money yeah. for information <laughs> that someone stole from you yeah oh gosh no i refuse to do the 23andme or any of that kind of stuff uh but at least did writing this piece make you curious about like the legacy of other members of your family you talk about meeting some of your mom's family for the first time like who else is there left to meet? like what are you still wondering about um, there are a lot of people on my mom's side, so I could probably spend years <laughs> meeting different people. Um, but it's funny you mentioned the reparations in California and and needing to like prove that you that we're directly from. Um, I think it was like slaves in the South. It was very specific. Yeah. And uh, my sister actually did a ton of research into our family history. So I have to give her credit because she has like a whole um, family tree. I think she just started on my mom's side. I don't know if she looked as much on my dad's side. But I actually found out a ton of information because of my sister's research. And um, this was also really impactful for me. To She, she had found this um, autobiography from – I have it I have it here at home, but I, I don't have it right in front of me, so I don't remember – the author's name, but it's like 
it's like a great, 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 great honor, something like that. <laughs> I can't totally remember. I have to go back to my journal too and see like what my notes were. But she writ, she wrote, um, or I think maybe she dictated an autobiography about her life as an enslaved person in Missouri and how she um, escaped to, I think, Massachusetts to um, become a free person. And this was oh, right wow. around, I think it was maybe right before the Civil War had ended. So um, I think once she got to Massachusetts, the Civil War had ended and then um, some some enslaved people were free at that point. But um, yeah, I brought that up because around the same time that I was reading the autobiography, I was also um, interviewing my grandmother to just record her stories uh, and, you know, have that audio record. And it just, it really, I was really impressed or impressed is not the right word, but I felt very impacted having um, the family tree that my sister put together and seeing the the lineage and the the family tree that she had put together and then you know knowing this story um from one of our ancestors uh it just made me feel like there's so much more that I don't know that I would like to know but I'm not sure if we'll ever be able to recover it since it so much of it wasn't documented and a lot of a lot of what we um, know is is by word of mouth. You know, so it's like really powerful that you have someone related to you who's in this genre of slave narratives, which is like all we have to know, like from the actual experience of slaves, what it was like enslaved people, like what it was like. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So I just found her name. The narrative was written by Maddie J. Jackson. It's called, yeah, the story of Maddie J. Jackson her parentage, experience of 18 years in slavery, incidents during the war, her escape from slavery, a true story. I love wow. that. And also like very traditional for um, those narratives to have a true story at the end. So people know that mm. you know, this actually happened and this is what we're talking about. But that's amazing, Elise. I'll have to read it uh, now that I know that I could actually get it. But I also really love what you're saying just about the women in your family and everything that they have gone through and wanting to know more about that. And I feel the same way I've been working on, you know, a book about family history. And that's, those are the stories I'm most drawn to is like the women in the family, like how did they end up marrying who they ended up? Like, what did they care about? Like, what were they thinking about? Like, which one of them am I like, like who I am, like who, who is that similar to? And, I find myself a lot of times because, yeah, it's a lot of oral tradition. So we're missing a lot, just almost like daydreaming of who these women were and what their lives were like and hoping between the daydreams or the oral history and anything else I can find, I can start to paint a picture of what they were like. And hopefully in, in our generation now, we can save more of our stories and actually like give our voice, like our very mm -hmm. voice to our descendants uh, in the future to know a little bit more about us. Yeah, at least I loved the thread. Um, it seems like we have similarities in just like trying to learn more about the women in, you know, in our families in the world. Odelia and I do a lot of work specifically with women of color. And so there's just something so powerful and resilient about all the generations and what they have to go through to make, to make things work. 
I've, I've also played the role of a family historian. So I'm feeling inspired by your sister who created this family tree is definitely something I've tried to do, but I maybe get up to my, my great, great grandfather. And that's about it. It's just in Vietnam, the documentation wasn't, we didn't do a lot of documentation and it was so common that people would pass at such a young age that, um, we just don't have a good record of these things. But I think having that family line and having that understanding that lineage is so powerful. So I'm also really excited about your project, Odelia, to learn more about your family history because, yeah, we, you know, these stories that we don't, that aren't told, they just, they disappear. And the, our the current generation, if they don't have access to this, then I don't know. I, I, I do wonder if people of the future will care much, as much about their family history and their lineage as, as we do. I think, you know, the three of us are somewhat around the same age and we grew up in a time before the internet was so huge and so big where information was, you know, not really coming at you from all sorts of direction. It was coming at you from dial up speed, you know? So, um, I think, you know, there, there, I have, I have so many memories of sitting around and listening to my family members tell stories about Vietnam, um, to the point where, I feel like to me, Vietnam feels like home. Like when I go back to Vietnam, I'm like, this is home to me because when I was growing up, like those were all the stories of like what home was to them. And so, you know, I, I feel like I have this, um, this just this passion to learn about our history and our, our, to understand a little bit more, but I do hope people of the future will also, you know, seek out information of the past. I, and I yeah. hope so. <laughs> but I will say that there's just, just no, there's nothing quite like storytelling and oral tradition. Yeah. And it is remarkable how much can be remembered as long as there is one or two people in every generation that cares to pass the story down. And I remember I took a storytelling class in undergrad and I just recited all the stories as much as I could remember from my mom in uh, the class. And everyone was like, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, we went to to Scotland a few years ago to the library there and we're like we have a name and we like what they do their occupation and we think that their ship would have come over from Scotland in like the mid to late 1800s to like you know present day Guyana and the person seemed so skeptical because she was like oh you have a story about that and then she like went back into their archives and sure enough she found the name the occupation we told her like the the year range we gave her a ship from Scotland to the New World landed in present day Guyana and it was just one of those moments you're just like yes like the things that we are still breathing out of our mouth and remembering are just as accurate mm -hmm. well you know in that spirit it seems like all of us are continuing to write we're continuing to take in stories we're uh, we're continuing to be curious and so I'm I was really happy at the end of your story, Elise, to hear that you're still continuing your writing and affirming your identity as a writer. So I would love to hear, what have you been writing lately? So I've mostly been journaling, just that's what, normally what I do for myself. Um, but I haven't been working on a specific writing project right now. The thing that I've actually been working on is my podcast, um, which, Vina, you so graciously <laughs> Uh, helped me with back in October with recording an episode. This is uh, not a plug. <laughs> I was like, not you out here talking about a podcast on our podcast. <laughs> hey, hey, we support each other. <laughs> women supporting women. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I've been working on that um, and just 
um, doing like the editing and just refining some of the um, language for that and hope to share it later um, in the spring. But I haven't been working on any any um, specific writing projects re- beyond my own like journaling and, and the writing that I do for myself. That's writing. I, I think that's writing. We have to consider all the things. Um, we work with writers all the time and sometimes it's like, you know, you don't need a finished product. You don't need a published book to consider yourself an author or a writer or a creative. If you are putting words on a page or anything, or you're speaking words into a mic or your phone, I, I think that's art and that is creativity and that's writing. So you're writing, you're a writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lisa, I hope you keep writing. Um, thank you so much for being with us today and gifting us with your story. I hope that because of the work your sister did, you'll be able to get these reparations, especially for people like me who aren't eligible. Immigrants are not eligible. Uh, but most of all, I hope that one day someone's going to pick up a book from you that is the true story of Elise and be so excited that it exists uh, and give them a glimpse into your amazing life. Hey, speak it into existence. (laughs) Yes, we are speaking it. We are manifesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all for um, having me today. And this is such a great experience and um, being able to reflect on that story and process this for your podcast has been a wonderful opportunity. So I appreciate you all for making these accessible for women of color. Uh, Both of these stories, you know, just have me thinking so much about grandmas and the wonderful addition to a child's life that grandmas, grandmothers have. And to be honest, at this point in my life, I think I'm way more excited to be a grandmother than I am to be a mother. Um, So in that spirit, I wanted to play a game with you. We played this game in the first season and we're, we're bringing it back. So the game is you're going to imagine yourself as a grandma and you're going to answer the following questions. So as a grandma, would you spoil your grandkids? Mm, it's a tough one because I'm just like, you know, they got to gotta know the world's tough. But yeah, I'm going <laughs> to spoil them because I want every generation to have a simpler, more joyful existence in the last. And so if I could add to them feeling loved and that they could be anything they want to be and do anything they want to do, then I'm going to be like the first person to always say that like, yes, you can dream that, you can do that and make sure that they're dreaming big and don't feel like Mm -hmm. they're being stopped early in life. So you're a steamy on this one. Yeah, I'm steamy. I'm steamy. <laughs> Real steamy. Scalding hot. <laughs> I think I would be the same too. Although I always think that I will spoil like kids more. And but like just seeing how I am as an aunt, I think I might be a little bit more lukewarm. It's like, yes, I want to spoil them all the right things. Like, you know, anything you want to learn, anything you want to do, like hundred percent. Like I will put you in the day camp, the summer camp, whatever you want. But if you want to drink soda for every meal, like that's not happening. You know, so <laughs> maybe that's a lukewarm for me. Um, what about as a grandma, would you drink with them when they are teens? Mm, when they're teens? So this is like pre, no, nah, no, nah, you know, they got to they gotta drink behind my back. So, <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to do it. It's got to be behind my back. But, you know, once they're, 
you know, that legal age, we're going to enjoy some wine together. You know, I want them to enjoy the finer things in life. I don't want them to end up being like a vodka or a gin fan. Like that would be terrible. So, um, you know, got to make sure they love bourbon and mezcal and the lovely, the um, finer gin, things in life. Gin is good. There's good gins out there. Yeah. And my grandkids will not be hanging out with you. So, <laughs> you know, it's good to learn these things about people early. Gin and tonic with Hendrix and a sprig of lemon is a good choice. Just got to be shown the way. <laughs> um, I think once the kids are like maybe 15, I would definitely be up to introducing them to wine. Got child better. services out here putting notes <laughs> down. They're going to be like, check back on this woman in like, <laughs> you know, 30 How years. years? Oh, yeah. Would I be a grandma in 30 years? I don't, I don't maybe. know. Maybe. 50 years. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I'll be alive in 50 years. That's a long time from now. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I shouldn't be morbid. I feel like I've been kind of morbid in this, this conversation. <laughs> um, okay, last one. As a grandma, would you keep secrets that your grandkids tell you from their parents? Yeah, absolutely. And even if it was something that I thought, you know, like, oh, wow, that could be potentially harmful. Like, I feel like as someone who loves them and is also, you know, in a way a guardian, I would love to to figure out how I can support them in, in solving it and then you know, tell the parents as, as necessary. I think it's going to be a game time decision, but as long as it's something that I think, okay, it's actually up to my grandchild when this comes up, then I'm going to keep that like very close to me. How about you? So yeah, scalding. Yeah, same. I think that that sounds about right for me too. All right. So I think to end this conversation, it's been so fun to just, you know, talk about this with our our storytellers and to talk about it with you. I think it's such a great way to come back into, you know, maybe this could be our legacy. Who knows? Who knows? You know, all the listeners out there. Um, oh, I definitely for, think the storytelling work part that we're it. doing. Yeah. I definitely think the storytelling work that we're doing is part of our legacy. And I'm very excited about that. Yeah, me too. And I think when I think about legacy, most of it seems pretty positive, but I think there's some parts of it as well that maybe isn't so positive and that maybe we are ready to let go of. So when you think about maybe more specifically the legacy of your family, um, your chosen family or the community that you feel part of, what parts are you ready to let go of? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that over the years and I'm trying to come at it from a lens of it's not that it's like not positive. It's that like I in this time, in this body and this space have been prepared to do something that people before me have not had the space or the Mm. ability to do. And now it's up to me in this time to kind of understand like, what is it that I have been prepared to, to break? And I think a lot of that is just like, just the needless, like grinding away at things. You know, I, I look at my siblings, I look at family, they just work so hard And it really just breaks your body down and it makes you so drained that you just feel like you're just living for that next vacation. And I want to live for the day that I'm in, not for the next vacation. Mm -hmm. So really just trying to let go of this, like that we need to grind to work hard and like produce all the time and invite as much ease into my life as possible. And, you know, honestly, it's not something that I'm always successful at, but I still have time to break it and to be successful and hopefully my next generation will be able to do a little bit more of that work themselves too. Yeah, I really appreciate that framing that you put out that not thinking about it in terms of positive, not positive, but that you are particularly prepared or equipped to carry on the legacy in a certain way that those before us maybe didn't. 
And so I think for myself as well, um, keeping in line with that framing, I look back at like Vietnamese history and we've been like fighting for like thousands and thousands of years. Like it's just, you know, a history of fighters. Um, some of our most celebrated uh, like pe- figures in history are fighters um, who fought for freedom and liberation. And even looking at the Vietnamese diaspora, it's, you know, it's again, f- people who have like fought for survival, who continue to fight. Um, I go to I go to sleep and when I wake up, I have my fists are clenched, you know, and I have a, I have a grinding like a teeth grinding Oof. problem. Oh, no. <laughs> I, this is this is not very sexy, but you know, I go to sleep with like a mouth guard because I grind my teeth, um, and so I feel like so much of that, no matter how much meditation, yoga, like all the things that I do, journaling, you know, I there's so much tense, um, there's like this intensity in my body. And I think that just comes from a legacy of folks who've had to fight for so much and fight for survival. So I think the part of my legacy, our legacy that I'd like to also bring forth um, for myself and for future generations is a world in which we don't really have to fight anymore. And I know that's Mm -hmm. hard and that's tough, but that's what I dream of. I dream of a place where, you know, I can walk around the streets and like admire the, the citrus blossoms and like stare up at the sky and just- and just breathe. Um, I really inspire that for my nieces as well. I just want them to like, not feel like they have to fight the world. And I, I look to, you know, some of the older folks in my family and I just wish that they didn't feel like they needed to fight anymore. And there are days where, yes, we do have to fight. And especially given our world today, there are really things that we need to fight to protect the rights of others, protect the rights of ourselves. Um, but I do hope that there are moments in our life where we can, you know, feel that joy and and loosen our grips on, on our fists and unclench yeah. our jaws. Um, maybe remove your our mouth are, guard. <laughs> well, maybe exactly. Maybe your teeth are grinding because you got some things to say. So I hope you get to say those things. Thanks. Thanks. Mm, well, Vina, that was just a great first episode to launch season two back with. I'm just sitting in thoughts of legacy, the ones that we want, the ones that we are shifting and changing and smelling and taking in this beautiful, beautiful smell of this jasmine tea. And I hope everyone this week will think about what is it that you want to let go of? What are the things that you want to put forth in your life? Because our legacy starts with the things that we're doing right now, and it's never too late to change the things and to do things differently. So whatever you're changing, let us know. And we'd uh, love to hear. And we'll keep letting you know over the season what things the women that we're talking about are changing and what things we're changing as well. Thank you for listening to TN Transitions, brewing good stories down to the very last drop. 